Madeline Shaw is one of these change makers who's able to move and shake things regardless of sector. She's a serial entrepreneur who I first met when she was giving a keynote at the University of British Columbia Entrepreneurship Program. And she was talking about her work as co-founder of Isle, uh, where they make sustainable period products. And somebody in the audience asked her this question. They said, how do you justify making period products that are so expensive when you have this social mission? And she said, period products should be free, not cheap. And she went on to have these great insights about our collective responsibility to look after the world. So today in the Hikma Collective podcast, I have the honor of chatting with Madeline about her many initiatives and and her approach to her work. Uh, I'm Erica Makalak, founder of Hikma, and I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Thanks for joining. Thank you for being here with us, Madeline. Tell us about yourself. Sure. Thank you, Erica. Um, So um, my name is Madeline Shaw. I use she, her pronouns, and I am situated on the unceded traditional territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples in what's colonially known as Vancouver, Canada. And I'm a social entrepreneur. I often define myself as an eco-feminist entrepreneur to be a little more specific in my flavor of social. And I have founded um, now a few different impact-driven for-profit and non-profit entities um, that all have social change at their heart. So basically I see my practice as someone who builds kind of the vehicles or kind of scaffolding around a social change agenda to bring it into the world. And I'm also a writer and the author of a book called the greater good social entrepreneurship for everyday people who want to change the world. And, uh, that's me. Thank you. It's wonderful to have you. Uh, We really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. So tell me, Madeline, what are you building now? What are you working on these days? Yeah, thanks for that question, Erica. And so, uh, well, helping out at Isle, which is something that I still do. So Isle, formerly known as Lunapads, um, is a company that I'm best known as a co-founder. And I'm currently and have been for a few years, the director of partnership and impact. And so um, it's about nurturing relationships and what we're trying to do right now is, is create conditions for there to be, um, large scale institutional change. And so for example, governments, employers, post-secondary institutions purchasing and otherwise providing, um, reasonable menstrual care products for their constituents. And that is, as part of that, I'm working on relationships with government and, different people like really trying to do this at scale because the um anyways it's a it's a whole the the kind of mainstream marketplace now for reusable menstrual care products has become um kind of co-opted by mainstream capitalist interests and so i'm trying to go around that and also enact change at a far broader scale at this institutional kind of um Scale. So anyways, that's how I spend most of my time and that's exciting. And I'm also working on developing um, a shared co-working space that is family friendly called Nestworks. And so that's another um, 
projects that I've been involved with. I founded a few years ago now and um, born out of the experience of Suzanne, my business partner at Isle, and I having brought our children to work with us when they were young mm-hmm. um, because there was no access to childcare, <laughs> which is per- a persistent problem, as we know. And just really questioning this, you know, strict dichotomy of work and life that then we are sort of struggling to balance all the time. It's like, how about how would we approach that differently and use the language of integration rather than balance? It's like we only need to balance people, things that are separate or far apart. Right. So if they're integrated, then there's no need because it's inherently it's the same thing. Right. So anyways, that's um, a project that I work on as well. And then I also um bits and pieces, like I, I do speaking gigs related to my book, uh, The Greater Good. And I also, I don't know, I'm I'm a mom and I, you know, raising, uh, co-parenting a 17-year-old daughter who's amazing and just really being mindful of the fact that, you know, she's about to graduate from high school and, you know, may not even be living with us a year from now. Like, I don't know. And so I'm really kind of reprioritizing my role as a mother. Um mm-hmm. It, to spend time with her because she's who knows right and um those are those are my things those are a lot of things madeline and when did you first become a social entrepreneur when did that start well interestingly it started before i even you know put those two words together mm-hmm. you know as a little phrase um because i don't think the term social entrepreneurship was coined until um oh who was it who did it anyways it's in the book um it was a social entrepreneur right out of the gate because you know if you take those two words separately social and entrepreneur you know social comes first right and that to me is a very important um thing not just grammatically but in terms of significance it's like you are pursuing the practice the practice of entrepreneurship is is the how and the social is the why right so you're not showing up going oh i'm an entrepreneur who wants to do have you know social impact you're showing up saying i'm a social change agent and i'm deploying the tools of entrepreneurship to achieve social change ends and in my case that was super super true because um i became a feminist activist as a university student and that's really that was my first sort of calling to leadership and um just feeling like i really became who i was in um as a young you know university student feminist and and then becoming a social entrepreneur later naturally the feminism was kind of the underpinning of it the eco part of feminism came a little bit later and but then you know, so I was basically an activist who decided to use the tools of business to achieve my my goals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what was your first social enterprise? Uh, well, it was called Everywhere Designs, and it was um, a kind of local slow fashion business. And I had a retail boutique for about three years. Um, downtown in Vancouver and I had a manufacturing business and as part of that I was making Luna pads and the Luna undies and and so those products were part of a suite of other things that I was making I was making cloth shopping bags imagine that um, in the early 1990s which incidentally I tried to sell to Whole Foods at the time was called capers and they turned me down Uh, they didn't think that people would be interested when they could have plastic bags even in natural products 
like really <laughs> anyways um beside the point um so everywhere designs was my first company and then i didn't decided i didn't want to be in the retail business and i was trying to do too many things all at once and so i wanted to focus on luna pads and the period underwear in 1999. So I closed my store. And fortunately, at that time, I met my business partner, Suzanne Siemens, at a community leadership uh, program in Vancouver. And we got together and incorporated a new company dedicated to promoting the reusable menstrual products. Mm -hmm. I have so many questions I want to ask you, but one that I definitely want to get to is tell us about your books, The Greater Good. What is it about yeah, thank you for that. Um, so the full title of the book is The Greater Good, Social Entrepreneurship for Everyday People Who Want to Change the World. Mm -hmm. So just to break that down a little bit, The Greater Good is basically seeking um, to achieve collective benefit over individual success. And so it's not a... Um, you know, this isn't good to great, <laughs> you know, is what I'm saying in terms of business books. It's, it is a business book and it's about start in the sense that you're starting ventures, but they don't have to be for profit. They could be nonprofit. They could even be a project. They don't need to have a legal structure in my opinion. And nothing is sort of too quote unquote small. Um, I think a lot of people believe that they're, they're, ventures, their ideas need to be quote unquote scalable in this world. And I completely dispute that, especially when we look at radiant impact, which is more what I'm about where you're, you know, looking at a far more multifaceted um, definition of impact and success. Um, so the greater good is something is collective benefit. Um, social entrepreneurship, I often define that from the word, you know, the French word entrepreneurship, meaning to undertake. So all you're doing mm -hmm. is simply taking action, social being shorthand for um, social environmental impact. Um, everyday people is another interesting part of the title, you know, who are everyday people like that's kind of a, you know, obviously, it's a book title, so it needs to be relatively short. But everyday people is essentially code for anyone who is not white, cis, het, male, in trying to do something with technology mm -hmm. because it feels like that is the dominant paradigm for in the media for who entrepreneurs are is that they're trying to achieve these like disruptive scalable tech-based ventures and they're you know they're raising all the money and then they're scaling and they're you know 24 7 <laughs> and they're doing all this frenzied hustle you know whatever and then they're making a big exit and they made all this money and they you know they got all the toys and they won and in my world as a social entrepreneur, like the people I've seen are mostly women um, and non-binary individuals. Um, they are people of color. They are indigenous people. They're people of, you know, our elders. They're people of diverse abilities. They're um, who are pursuing ventures based on the kind of social change that they want to see in the world and that is rooted in their own experience, typically. Um, and so whether someone's experienced a traumatic um, event or they've seen because they have felt marginalized, have been marginalized in a certain um, setting, or they were seeking to solve a problem that, you know, was not been identified as being important enough in a mainstream kind of um way and just and are taking action are are undertaking to that entrepreneur word um something and so i really wanted to write my book 
to speak to those people, to encourage them to find themselves and to broaden this paradigm of entrepreneur beyond the, you know, the stereotype I just articulated um, a second ago and encourage them to um, find themselves in that paradigm, to reinvent the paradigm, to take it on as its own. Um, So in order to write the book, not only I included my own story, adventures and examples and so on. Um, But I also canvassed about a hundred other social entrepreneurs and drew on their stories because I wanted to be able to, like, I'm just one person and I'm, I belong to a very specific, you know, white settler woman over 50, you know, Anglophone, Western, you know, all of global North, blah, 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 able-bodied, et cetera. Um, So I wanted to get stories from folks who you know, didn't look like me thing, number one, but also we're pursuing ventures very different from my own Mm -hmm. um, to help other people find themselves in those stories. And even if they didn't find themselves in mine in particular. So the book is a lot of stories really. And, and yes, there's tips and, you know, here's your business model canvas and here's why money matters and those types of things are there too. But I really, um, I wanted to speak to the inner journey of social entrepreneurship and really to come from a place of encouragement as opposed to advice and um, give people a sense of being part of a movement and um, to encourage them to build relationship and seek connection with others in their community to co-create solutions to make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. That's the change the world part. (laughs) Yeah, well, and it, it completely comes through in the way that you talk about community and relationships too. I um, I mean, as you know, and I'll give a quick shout out to Entrepreneurship UBC when they threw that conference at which you were the keynote speaker, which was the first time that I heard you speak and you talked about the greater good. Um, and then they mentioned at the end of your talk that they were doing a pop-up book signing and Sophia and I had been watching virtually and I sprinted to the building to be able to to meet you and get your book. And even your your inscription in the book just said, let's do this. And I was like, that's so, that's so nice. I'm being invited into this, into this community and into this um thing that this movement that you're participating in and cultivating, um, it's really that was very exciting to me. Your business has been very successful. Your businesses, your work has been extremely successful in a world where not everyone shares your values. Um how do you build collaborative, productive collaborative relationships with people or organizations that don't share the same values as you? <laughs> it's super interesting. Yeah, because I'm see, I'm really challenged with that right now. There are um, a couple of universities in particular that I'd very like, local universities that I would like to cultivate a relationship with. And It's interesting because they talk a huge game about sustainability and gender equity and academic equity and all these things. And but when they're presented with a solution to address that with a local partner, they are completely inept at even getting anyone to return emails like it's it's kind of amazing. And so I see it as or I often frame it as someone just isn't there yet. And so then your role sort of becomes as a teacher um, that you're, you know, you, you can see something they can't see. And so you need to show it to them. And um, yeah, so it's it's just different. It's very different from like the energy of pitching. I'm mm-hmm. like, I'm going to 
I'm going to pitch you this idea. It's like, I'm going to, I'm going to share an idea with you about how to make the world a better place together and understand like, and under, not everybody is where you are or sees what you see. Like if I say, you know, I'm really interested in menstrual equity and some people will be like, what, like, what is that? And so I need to start from that place of like beginner's mind. Right. Mm-hmm. And even with products, it's like, somebody's like, wait, what? I have to wash them. Like, I would never say, oh, duh, of course you have to wash them. It's like, that's where they are. That's mm-hmm. what they know. We are all unlearning something and learning something else. And I'm one of those people too, right? Mm-hmm. I'm just, it's about different things. And so I think bringing empathy and compassion um, and very much right-brained thinking into it where you're appealing to someone emotionally as opposed to the left brain, like, this is what the numbers say. And, you know, bombarding people with statistics and telling them how bad a certain thing is or, you know, whatever. And I, I never, I don't communicate with people that way. I usually just share a story, you know, would try and personalize it. It's like, what do you think it's like for, you know, a grade nine student who's got a math test and starts her period in, the, you know, a hallway? Like how, what about that? Have you been that person? Might that person be your daughter? Might that like, you know, try and engage people that way and um, and help them find empathy because people, they can't resist emotion. Nobody can do that. Like, and it's the thing that's memorable. It's the thing that will always, um, it's where people really make decisions from. Yeah, totally. Even in a world where the presumption is that everything is based on numbers and metrics, you're totally yeah. right. Just the facts, ma'am. It's like, look where the facts have gotten us. <laughs> and how does that translate to communicating with investors and finding the right investors? Oh, that's another thing. Yeah. I mean, that is a place where I think people are still very stuck. Like even just the notion of investment and making, you know, a return on that investment and how that is measured um, financially and in other ways, not. Um, It is measured sometimes in impact as well as financial metrics. Um, But I think sometimes there's just a lack of nuance. Like I was in a meeting with an investor not too, too long ago, a couple of years ago. And he was so excited about Isle. And he was saying, you know, you you do so much good in the world and you're a B Corp and you do this and you have the LCA and no, 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 no. But gosh, you know, your margins are pretty skinny. Hmm. And I just thought to myself, well, do you not see a relationship between those two things? Like, how do you think, like, do you think it doesn't cost money to be a B Corp or to be a living wage employer or to, you know, conduct life cycle analyses or factory visits or audits or whatever you want to do to make sure or test your products to make sure they're not, don't contain toxic chemicals or whatever. Like we do all those things and they all cost money. And that means that our margins skinny. And he's basically saying, you got to work on your margin, but you do so much good in the world. And I'm like, how do you, you know, so Anyways, I just, I was in stunned silence and I reflected back to him. I'm like, there's a relationship between those two things. And that's like this, this dream that I think a lot of investors have 
that they still want the money, but they want it to be clean money. They want it to be, mm-hmm. they want to feel good about it, but they still want the money. And I, I really, I dispute that. And I think we need to adjust our expectations, if you will, around, you know, it's like, I want my 10 X return, but I also want it to be, you know, fossil fuel free and, you know, all those <laughs> things. And it's like, I, I don't see that. I think that we need to be willing to make concessions or reframe just our idea of what a meaningful return is. And I've heard somebody say not long ago that they wanted to reframe the metric of ROI or return on investment as return on inspiration, which I thought was nice. And which is sort of like radiance. And, but for some people, that's just way too fuzzy. Like they can't, you know, wrap their minds around it. And that takes me back to that, you know, role of, of teacher, you know, people keep saying they want to innovate and so many ideas and yet they take, they have these sacred cows around. I need this X return and it has to work this way. And the bottom line is X and the margins Y and whatever. And it's like, if you really want to think about things differently, then try and take, like allow for the broadening of that lens. So what about Nestworks? Will you tell us more about your process of growing that? Well, Nestworks has been a slow burn because we were having, um, I mean, it was always like a side of the side of my desk sort of thing, but we have a very, very strong board of directors who are all interested in this idea of of family-friendly shared uh, co-working space. So in other words, it's a co-working space that has um, family-friendly amenities like child minding and dedicated nursing rooms and just that type of thing. So, you know, if you're a working parent of a small child, you can literally bring your child to work with you is the vision. And, um, and building community around that, that we call revillaging. And Mm -hmm. so I've been working on that idea. I sort of fell in love with that idea and said yes to it in around 2016. And, um, we were having pop-ups until COVID came and then COVID, you know, did COVID. And now we're looking to start our pop-ups again in um, the lower mainland. And it's been challenging, but I'm hopeful. Like, I think, you know, childcare regulations are a little bit outdated, I think. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's made it hard for us to be able to offer what we want to offer. And again, it's a vision thing. Like, if you can tell that you're the way the world has been designed is presumed like this nuclear family where the mom would be home with the kids and the dad would be downtown in an office building. And it's like, neither of those things are true anymore. Right. Um, so how do we design to actually meet this um, very different, you know, gig economy um, thing where, you know, lots of parents don't want to put their kids in full-time daycare. They don't need that. They need flexibility. And um so I think flexibility is the new balance in a lot of ways and that we need to design with that in mind and allow people and also the way people live, like a lot of people in Vancouver live in very small spaces, right? They don't necessarily have like a physical space where they can, you know, do work from home easily and, you know, have family time and stuff like that. So Anyways, we're hoping to resurrect our um, pop-ups in 2023 and hopefully open a permanent location sometime once we can raise money. And um, yeah, I'm excited about it, but I'm not like pushing it. You know what I mean? Like as with the rest of my sort of philosophy, it's like, I've only got so many hours in a day. 
I I'm trusting that this idea will show up like even um, somebody wrote to me from Kelowna the other day and they're like, hey, you know, we want to do this in Kelowna. And I just sent them the business plan. Like, I'm like, go for it. Go ahead. Do it. Like, if it's not me, that kind of makes it easier. I just want somebody to, to you know, to do this. And um, so that's another funny fallacy in our in our world of like, I need to, they're my ideas. I need to control this thing and, it, you know, whatever. And um, or somebody's going to steal it from me. I'm like, just give it away. Like, just go, go do it because the world needs it. And so that's much more representative of how I look at things. Like, you know, why wouldn't, why wouldn't I, you know, knowing this actually individual person was a big part of it. And she was working in partnership with local first nations and whatever. I'm just like, just go, just have it. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give to a person who is motivated to drive some kind of social change and is thinking about starting a business? What's the very first step? Besides buying your book, of course. Yeah, yeah. The book took well, the book was really written for that type of person. Um, if you haven't already done some form of documentation around why you want to do what you want to do, um, I would start there. And um, and that can look like a lot of different things. I mean, some people would make a drawing or a collage. Um, it can be a conversation with another person. It could be a voice memo. It could be a short video. It could be kind of anything, but just to kind of externalize, begin the process of externalizing your ideas. I, I think in terms of presentation decks myself is something I'll make on my computer um, sometimes. Um, just to sort of like get all the the pieces of, because it's usually not just one succinct, like here's the thing, I'm, it's exactly what I'm going to do. It's like, there's usually a bunch of different feelings or experiences um, that have led to the genesis of this idea. And so try and find what those things might be. What are the stories um, that have led up to this? Because crafting your story is as important as whatever financial plans and operational plans and whatever else that you're going to do to actually make this happen, because the story is going to guide everything. And within that story, um, there is probably some kind of a feeling or an emotion, um, some form of transformation, like the hero's journey is a great um, reference point of understanding, like what is the challenge that you know, you faced, you saw a problem, you, you know, you did something, whatever that, that very basic narrative is something um, that the more in touch you can be, uh, and the clearer that you can be around what that is, and find a way of telling that story visually, or orally, or whatever in the written word, um, that is, that will serve as kind of your, your touch point through your entire journey as an entrepreneur because mm-hmm. you will always be asked that and you will always um like let's put it this way if you were sitting let's say you met someone at a meeting or you were in a coffee shop or whatever and and they're like yeah i'm working on this social impact venture nobody wants to know what your financial plan is nobody wants to know what your operational plan is people want to know why people want to know how what is the change that you seek to create and that so that's why i say that because all the other things that can come like you or someone else can do it whatever but that story needs to come from you and that feeling um 
And I break this down a lot in the book. There's a lot that I have to say about crafting this and finding the emotional touch points and so on and creating a space for someone to respond to it and find themselves in your story. Um, Because that, like, honestly, it's how how you're going to get people to work with you. It's how you're going to find investors. It's how you're going to find customers. Like, all of it goes back to that feeling and people wanting to be part of that story with you. Mm-hmm. On the flip side of that, if you are an organization, say a business that already exists, that is thinking about trying to turn itself toward social good, um, what would you recommend as the first step for the leader of an organization that wants to rethink how it's doing things? Well, it depends on what they're doing. Like it, it, like if if it's you know let's say a mining company that's i don't know or you're building weapons or i don't know whatever doing something that's really super extractive obviously you need to or unsustainable you need to like stop or change those practices and i i don't know like in some cases that would be very extreme um but i would say to the leader of a company who let's say you know they're they're going about their business and and what their business is achieving is is neither it's neutral. Like it's neither beneficial nor extractive. It's just, you know, going about its business. Um, to, I would look to becoming certified as a B Corp actually as the best mm-hmm. way, because it, it, um, so B Corps are for-profit entities that are, have undertaken very rigorous assessment in terms of like all of their social and environmental impacts of all of their operations. And there's a sort of a, a test or B Corp readiness assessment that you can take as to sort of dip your toe in. Um, but I would say if the leader of a for-profit company is serious about wanting to, their, their business to be as socially environmentally impactful as possible is that is the number one best way to do it because it's rigorous it's um and and it also brings you into a network of about 5000 other businesses globally who are as concerned and um as interested in and as willing to walk the talk as mm-hmm. you are because it really shows that that's it's the difference some people are talking and other people are walking and b corps are walking the talk. And Isle is a B Corp, right? Been a B Corp since 2012. Thank you very much. Yes. And what was the most, is there anything about the process that you learned about Isle through becoming a B Corp? I would say if anything for us, becoming a B Corp just formalized what was already true. Hmm. Like we at Isle, we've always been ahead of our time in terms of doing these things and caring about sustainability and caring about our, you know, human social impact and so on. And so it basically codified and quantified what we were already doing. So -hmm. if anything, it showed me that we were already sort of ahead of the curve and um, that but that we're not alone. Like there are other people who care just as much as we do and are willing to put the work into it. So uh, it felt really good, not just to be able to become a B Corp, but to be sort of brought into the fold, if you will, of other companies who are really leading in terms of um, creating, you know, new standards or ways to be sustainable and that type of thing. So. Mm. Really interesting. Well, thank you so much for your time, Madeline. It's been a total pleasure to chat with you. We appreciate it. 
Me too, Erica. You are awesome. And I just, I wish you every success in, you know, work and life and in what you're doing. I think it's amazing. And I'm very honored to have been part of this. So thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Hikma Collective podcast. I'm your host, Erica Makalak, founder of Hikma. The production of this episode was led by Sofia Van Hees in collaboration with Smangele Madena, Eufemia Valdesare, Ai Mazuda, Nicole Markland, and Dashara Green. Matthew Tomkinson composed the original music you hear now in his capacity as the 2022 Hikma Artist in Residence. This podcast has been made possible with generous support from Innovate BC, Tech Nation, the Information and Communications Technology Council, the Canada Digital Adoption Program, and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. You can find show notes, links, and transcripts at www.hikma.studio slash podcast. Hikma is situated on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Hunkamedam-speaking Musqueam people. We are grateful to be here and to share this space with you. Our speakers, team members, and listeners are based all over the world. And wherever you're listening, we encourage you to learn more about whose land you're on.